this morning, I do want to move on with the book of Hebrews. And I want to cover something here that I, I struggled to try to figure out. When I do a sermon, I don't want to just have a Bible lesson. I try to have a point for us to walk away with. This morning, this section very much is more of a historical story. But I think in my studies, the Lord was kind to me and laid something on my heart that I want us to learn from this. So I'll hold that to the end. So just know if this seems like just a history lesson, it's a history lesson with a, with a point. And that's the title of the message is why we should care about a man from 4,000 years ago. So we're going to look at a man from history. And now 4,000 years, to be honest, that's a, a little bit of a guess. But it's, it's a reasonable guess about how long ago this person existed. So let's keep that number. But think about that. What can we learn from a historical figure from 4,000 years ago? Now, it'd be easy if I said from 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ. That's obvious. But what about even before Jesus, another man? So that's what we'll look at this morning. If you're like me, you may, may not care about history, but I love history. I love reading history. I think it helps inform what we have today, what we do today. In fact, the Bible teaches this idea that nothing really is new. Things are sort of repeated from old, just in different ways. But history repeats itself. But what I want to show us this morning that the writer of Hebrews does, which to me is fantastic, he takes a historical story, a historical figure, and he's going to try to get us to see that guy, God did something with that man's story from 4,000 years ago that should help shape how we think and appreciate our salvation in Christ today in the year 2023. So that's the heart I want to convey from this. It would be easy, as I said, to keep this as just a Bible study um, but the fact is, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's going to build a case. He's, he's, he's really doing a sermon. I think the whole letter of Hebrews was a sermon by a pastor. And, and I think for these 13 chapters was one setting. And so it's hard when we look at it in chunks and pieces. We're pulling it out. So we're doing that this morning. But what I just want you to see is if we were to keep reading, you would understand what he says in verses 1 through 10 has a point for something later on. It's basically, he wants us to understand something about this, a guy named Melchizedek. Because it's going to be important for us to understand why Jesus did what he did. That man from 4,000 years ago, Melchizedek, God did something with that and used it to help us understand Jesus Christ's work for us, dying for our sins, and the salvation that he offers us. So what he's going to do is, is this morning give us sort of a foundation, the historical background to help us understand who Melchizedek was. Basically, then he's going to make a point later on to say, if you can understand Melchizedek, then you can understand the point I'm going to make about why Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That will inform why our salvation is so important. And I want you to think of it like, like this, and, and I'll dive into the passage but just how my mind works. Let's, let's work big to small. So here's what's going to happen if you come with us for the next few weeks. The writer of Hebrews is going to now start making a case about why Jesus is superior and the salvation that he offers is superior. And how he's going to do it is he's going to start here with saying, you need to understand who Melchizedek was and why he was important. That means Jesus has a greater priesthood 
Then he's going to make the case around chapter 8 that because Jesus has a greater priesthood, he brings a greater covenant. Then that'll lead to Jesus ministers in a greater temple, a temple in heaven, not on earth. And then he'll end around chapter 10 with the big point to say, all of that means Jesus offers a superior sacrifice, the sacrifice of his own body to bring eternal salvation for those who draw near to him in faith. I want to read to you, we're going to jump ahead, and it'll be on your screen, I believe, but I want to read to you Hebrews 10, and here's why. When we go through the next few weeks' sermons, remember Hebrews 10, I'll keep reminding us, we're really working our way to this point. We're just not there yet, but I want us to see what we're trying to get to. The point he's going to make after he explains all this stuff comes in Hebrews 10, verse 19. He's going to say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up with love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. I just wanted us to see context. That's what we're trying to get to, is he's trying to go through this doctrinal stuff to say, therefore do this, and what's to do this? Have greater confidence in your salvation because Jesus is a greater priest, a greater sacrifice, he brings a greater covenant. So you can have all assurance that if he holds your salvation, it's done. You can take it to the bank, it's secure. So have confidence in this life. Now, in Hebrews 5.11, if you recall, he said about this, and the this was Melchizedek. We have much to say, but it's hard to explain because you become dull of hearing. And we went through the series on dull of hearing. Well, now we're coming back, and he basically says, I'm going to go ahead and explain more about Melchizedek because it's important. And how he's going to argue his point is in the first 10 verses that we're going to look at this morning, I would call that he's going to make a case for the superiority of Melchizedek's priesthood. It's greater than the priesthood Aaron offered in the Old Testament. And then round to verse 11, he's going to pick up and say, okay, there was a need for another priest to come after Melchizedek, not Aaron. And the answer is that'll be Jesus. And then he'll move and say, okay, now then, that means Jesus has an eternal priesthood. Why does that matter to you and I? Because if he offers you an eternal priesthood and you trust in him, that means your salvation is eternal. His priesthood never ends. Your salvation never ends. It's secure forever and ever. And then he'll finish up around chapter 8 with Jesus brings a superior covenant. A covenant not like the old where you brought animals and you kept 600 and something laws. Not like that. A covenant with a heart of faith. The Holy Spirit living in your heart, teaching you to follow God from the heart. So we're laying a foundation this morning. With that in mind, let me read the first three verses, and I'd ask you to join in standing out of respect for the reading of God's word, just the first three. I apologize, I'm not sure I made it to the screen with this, so that's not their fault in the booth. But in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, it reads, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, 
thank you that I'm able to be back. I'm physically well enough to preach, and I'd ask that you'd continue to help me to get through this message. But more than that, Father, I just ask, Holy Spirit, you would touch every heart and ear here, that you would give someone a word that, that they came here today needing to hear from Hebrews. God, would you speak to someone in a way that I couldn't have even imagined in preparing for this message? Just please touch touch our hearts and minds in a way, Lord. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, would something be said from Hebrews, Holy Spirit, that, that you use to draw them to you, convict them so strongly that they finally realize their need for a, a personal Savior to make you the Lord of their life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So like I said, please hang with me. A little bit of history, and we're going to get to a point in the end. So let's look at this here. Here's the point he's going to make. Melchizedek has a superior, or you could say greater, priesthood than Aaron ever could have offered. Aaron was from the tribe of Levi, and the Levites were the ones to be the priests in Israel. But he's going to make comparisons here, sort of apples to apples, and his point is going to just simply be, those guys had their place. They were important, but they weren't the point. God had a greater point beyond Moses and Aaron, beyond Levi. And he's going to use Melchizedek to say, let me show you something here that God was doing 4,000 years ago with a man for us today to learn something very special about our salvation in Christ. Melchizedek had a superior and a greater priesthood. And again, keep in your mind, the reason all this is important is he's going to make the case not this week, but next, he's going to say, Jesus comes after Melchizedek. So then everything he offers is greater than what Aaron, Moses, and any of them could have ever brought. So let's look at how he makes his argument for who Melchizedek was and why he had a greater priesthood. So the first thing is he's going to say, well, Melchizedek's priesthood was greater because it was eternal. It didn't have an end. It kept going. And that's in the first three verses here. And let me back up and let's talk about, though, who was Melchizedek? Who is he actually talking about? And if you've been with us over the weeks in Hebrews, he's come up before around chapter 4 or 5. But let me just say a few quick words here. He appears very, very briefly. He shows up in the Bible and then he's gone. You don't ever see him again. There's really technically only four verses in all of the Bible, just four, that reference Melchizedek. And yet this guy, the writer of Hebrews, builds half of a letter in the New Testament off of that guy. Just four verses, and he can form this deep argumentation to show us how important he was for us, us to understand salvation in Christ. So he's a very important guy. But it, I want you to remember this, just four verses, that's going to become important at the end of the message. There's a reason for that, I believe, why God did that. If this man is so important, why is there not a whole book named after Melchizedek in the Bible? Why is there not a whole chapter? There's a reason. He only gets four verses, I believe. It's a very, very important reason. But let me share with you his story. It takes place in Genesis chapter 14. The background to it is Abraham, his nephew Lot, became a captive in a war. Lot got caught up in, in the middle of these kings fighting each other. And the king that won took a bunch of captives from the families in the villages, the cities there. Lot got caught up in this. So Lot and his whole family, his children, his possessions, they were carried off into captivity. Abraham, his uncle, hears about it. And the Bible says that Abraham rallied some 300 or so men, 
just on his farm, his ranch, that were able to fight. So Abraham had a lot of people serving his farm, huge farm, and they were somehow combat trained or able to fight, and Abraham formed this militia, and they set off to rescue his nephew Lot. And the story goes, he won. They have this battle. Abraham and his 300 and some militia men, they overthrow the king that won, rescues his nephew Lot, gets his family back, gets the possessions back. Victory. Abraham's triumphant. So he's traveling back to his home place where he was residing. On the way to him traveling back, something mysterious happens. And that picks up in Genesis 14, verse 17. It says, after his return, that's Abraham, from the defeat of Keterleoma, that's the kings, some of the kings he defeated, and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheba. That's not important. Verse 18 is where it gets important. And Melchizedek, so here's this guy. He comes out of nowhere. We're given no background to where he, he came from, who he was. He just appears out of nowhere here in verse 18. And it just says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And there's this parenthetical explanation that he was priest of God most high. Again, this is the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. This is before Exodus and where God's revealed more of himself to people. But somehow God had gotten his message out to other nations on the world. And this guy, Melchizedek, personally knew the one true God. Jehovah, Yahweh, he knew him. And it says not only did he know him and serve him, God made him a priest to himself. This is before Aaron was born. Remember, Aaron was the first priest. But yet here we have reference to Melchizedek is the first priest to God Most High. Before Levi was ever a thing, before the priest of the Levites was ever a thing, before the tabernacle was built, before any of that, we have this reference to, no, 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 there was already a priest that God was using. And his name was Melchizedek. Look what he did, verse 19. He blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, this is Melchizedek talking, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, notice what happened here. Abram gave a tenth of everything to Melchizedek, it's implying. Gave a tenth of the spoils of war is the implication there. The stuff that he had gained from the victory of the battle. We would call that a tithe. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. Now, if you're confused, good. Because there's no other explanation about Melchizedek in the Bible. He shows up and he's gone. He appears out of nowhere. He brings out bread and wine. Abraham had some idea of who he was because he tithed to him. We don't have a lengthy dialogue recorded where Abraham said, Hey, I've never heard of you. Who are you blessing me, praying over me? And we don't have recorded Melchizedek saying, Well, here's uh, where I grew up. Here's who my mom and dad was. Here's when God called me to be a priest. Here's when I became king. None of that. We don't have it. And I want to keep stressing this. I think that's on purpose. It's going to become a very good reason here later on. So let's go back to Hebrews. Who was Melchizedek? People have wrestled with this. A lot of Bible scholars have tried to wrestle with, who was that guy? And what happens is they start to theorize, well, maybe he wasn't really a person at all. Maybe that story was just an allegory and that it didn't literally happen. It was just an allegory for something else. 
And my question would be, if that's true, but for what purpose? Allegories are usually explained later on in the Bible, and this one would have no explanation. I don't think God would do that. God would tell us a purpose and help us understand. So I think that theory is out. Some have argued that maybe he was an angelic-type figure. He, he wasn't fully human. Some have gone so far as to say, well, maybe what was going on is it was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus, the Son of God. Maybe Melchizedek was the Son of God that appeared to Abraham and, and blessed him and did all that stuff. And we, he didn't know his name was Jesus. He didn't know who he really was, but he, he was the Son of God appearing there. Again, I, I don't believe that's right at all. Because other parts of the Bible in Genesis, God has appeared in a human-type form to people. You'll see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, is usually the Son of God that appeared. Abraham has met God in person before, and every time he did, he recognized he was talking to the Lord. There's no recognition here on Abraham's part that he was talking to the Lord. So that leads me to what I think is the plainest conclusion, to take the story as it says, which is this. Melchizedek was a real man from history. He was a Canaanite person. He was from the Canaanite regions. He wasn't a Jew, but he was a king over a place called Salem, which interestingly enough, Salem later becomes Jerusalem. The name changes. So he's a king over the Jerusalem area, and he was priest to God Most High. Yet he was a Canaanite and from that area, but he worshiped the one true God. So that's my take. He, just take the story for what it says. He was a real person from 4,000 or so years ago. We don't know his background. That's fine, but he was real. And he met Abraham, and Abraham recognized his importance. Now, what makes this guy so significant is the way in which Hebrews uses him. He spends a huge part of this letter or sermon, I believe, using Melchizedek to make a case for Jesus being a greater high priest and king. So to appreciate that a little bit better, that's why I believe he goes through here to say we need to understand who Melchizedek was and what he did with Abraham, and that's going to help us understand Christ later on. Now, one more thing for background. I'm sorry this is a little bit like a lesson here, but, but just hang with me. We need to understand one more thing to understand Melchizedek's story. And that's this idea of called typology in the Bible. There's a $2 word for you. Typology in the Bible is used a lot. And, and let me help you understand this. And I think once I give you two examples, you'll say, oh, yeah, duh, I, I knew that. You just probably have never heard the word typology. Typology is a way that the New Testament writers would pull on the Old Testament. They would take a concept from the Old Testament, pull it into the New and give it a, a deeper meaning, a fuller meaning, because of what Jesus had done. So they took um, a real historical event from the Old Testament, or a concept, and then they would say, hey, we can understand that in a bigger sense when we filter it through Jesus. So they would take an Old Testament idea and use it as a type for something Jesus had done. It sort of gave it a fuller interpretation, a fuller meaning. Let me give you an example of two types that the Old Testament, or excuse me, that the New Testament used from the Old. The first one would be the bronze serpent in Numbers. In Numbers 21.7, Israel sinned, deeply sinned. God sent these venomous snakes through the camp and it started biting people and making them sick and some died. 
And they cried out to Moses. In Numbers 21, 7, it says, The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and here's what he did. God told him, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, so make a serpent-like statue and stand it up. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Now, that is a real historical story from the book of Numbers. But Jesus Christ himself, when he talked to Nicodemus, said this in John chapter 3, verse 14. And he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So even Jesus used that event of the bronze serpent statue as a type for something he would do. He says, look, I'm going to be physically lifted up on the cross, and that's kind of like what Moses did with that serpent in the Old Testament. Another quick example is in Genesis 22, verse 8, Abraham said God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And let me skip to the Passover in Exodus 12. God said you're to keep this lamb in your house for the until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So there's this concept in the Old Testament of a lamb being provided by God and its blood saving people. Then you fast forward to John 129 and John the Baptist sees Jesus and cries out. He says the next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus wasn't literally a lamb, but John said, all of that Old Testament stuff about God providing a lamb and it's saving people, Jesus is the sort of person that does that. He's like God's lamb being provided. I shared all that to say that's what Hebrews is doing with Melchizedek. He's taking that story and saying, let me give it a fuller meaning for us to understand something about Jesus Christ. He does it with uh, Melchizedek. He uses him as a type to explain Jesus' priesthood. So that means Jesus was not literally, or excuse me, Melchizedek was not literally Jesus in the Old Testament. He was his own man, but his story is going to be used to give a type of a foreshadowing and a greater explanation for Jesus as high priest. So with that in mind, let's look at Melchizedek a little bit more. Let's look at his titles. In verses 1 and 2, he gives us some descriptors of Melchizedek. He says, this Melchizedek, and he calls him king of Salem. And I told you Salem became Jerusalem. So king of Salem, king of Jerusalem. That's significant because he's a Canaanite. He's not a Jew. He's from the Canaanite region, but yet he's a king and he's a king over the Jerusalem area here. So Melchizedek wasn't just a priest. He was a king. He ruled over a city area there, a region. Then he says he was priest of the most high God. So he's a king and he's a priest. He is a priest of Jehovah, of Yahweh, not not of Baal or all these other gods. No, he was a worshiper of the one true God. So he's king of Salem or Jerusalem, and he's priest of the Most High God. So then we can say about him, he's a priest king. He's both in one. He wasn't just a king, and he wasn't just a priest. He's a priest king. Why is that important? Because in Israel, that was not possible. Only a priest could come from Levi, a king could never come from Levi. They couldn't cross over. You could never have a person in Israel sit on the throne of David who was also a priest. Impossible according to the law. The roles were always separate. 
But here, this guy merges the two together. He is both priest representing people to God. He's like a bridge between holy God and sinful people and functions as a king on behalf of God as well. Who's this sounding like? Jesus Christ. Both priest and king together. That's, again, the point he's trying to make. So what about his names? He says in verse 2 here, the point I want to get to, he says Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything, but look what he says here. His name by translation means king of righteousness. So the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he says when we talk about him being king of Salem, that can be translated king of peace. So what are his titles? He's a king that bears righteousness and a king that brings peace. Again, who is this all sounding like? Jesus, the prince of peace, the king of kings and lord of lords, the bringer of God's righteousness to mankind. That's how he's using Melchizedek to set the case for us later of all Jesus has done. This is all foreshadowing Jesus. Well, let's get to the actual story of what happened. Again, verses 1 through 2, I'm still there. He says, This Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed Abraham. But Abraham then in return gave a tenth part of everything. So what did he do? He blessed Abraham, gave him a blessing, because he's a priest. He's functioning as a representative of God, and he's representing Abraham back to God. Remember, that was the priest's job. They're like a bridge between sinful people and holy God. They can't interact with one another, so the priest is like a connecting bridge. So Melchizedek represents that bridge between God and Abraham. He issues out a blessing on behalf of God to Abraham. And in return, Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. Now, that's what happened there. That's the exchange. But I want you to see the point he's really trying to make is in verse 3. And it's, the, it's that his priesthood is eternal. Melchizedek's priesthood is eternal. It, it never stopped. Because in verse 3 he says, He, that's Melchizedek, is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as priest forever. That's the key. He continues as priest forever. His priesthood, it's as if... It never stopped. Now, let me say some things here. This does not mean literally that Melchizedek was fatherless and motherless. That's not what the wording means. What he is saying is we have no record of his family genealogy. It's not recorded down for us. Remember, I've been stressing to you there's only four verses about Melchizedek. There's very little information shared about him, and I think there's a reason God did that. If any more information had been shared about Melchizedek, we could not be talking about him today the way in which we are. So there's a reason I think God withheld information and made him be a mysterious figure. Because look here, he can say, look, we don't know who his mom was, his dad was. We don't know what family lineage he had. We don't know where he grew up. And then he goes on to say, it's, it's as if he has no beginning of days and no end. It's as if he's eternal. He's not saying he literally was eternal. He's saying the fact that there's no information about him, we can sort of say that's like an analogy that this guy is very mysterious. We don't have it recorded down for us where he came from, how long he lived. The Bible doesn't say Melchizedek, son of John. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say Melchizedek lived 137 years. It doesn't say any of that. It just says he's here and he's gone. And so his point then he can say is, I can use that as a type to, to say, 
it's as if we can say his priesthood never ended because he has no recorded death. So he's still functioning as a priest forever. Then he goes on to say, it's, it's like he resembles the Son of God. Again, resembling doesn't mean he is the Son of God. It literally means he can use Melchizedek to, as a type or an analogy to explain something about Christ. It's as if the lack of details about his story let him make the point. It's kind of like he shares the story of Jesus. Jesus comes from heaven. Yes, he had an earthly mother and Joseph, his adoptive earthly father. But really, though, Jesus is eternal. He's God. He come down to earth. He died, but he rose again. He's eternal. He functions forever as priest. He says, that's like Melchizedek. We don't have it recorded that he stopped. It's like he kept going. Therefore, his priesthood is greater than Aaron's. It's superior because Aaron grew old and died. And a son had to take over his priesthood. And then that son grew old and died. And another son had to take over. For generation after generation, they grow old, they die. A son takes over, they grow old, they die. The point he's making is that priesthood was temporary. It had a start and an end. Melchizedek, we don't have that recorded. We have no recording of when he was born and when he died. It's like his priesthood just keeps going. It's greater than Aaron's. What he's going to do is make a case from Psalm 110, verse 4. Here's the other place where Melchizedek's mentioned. David wrote Psalm 110, and he talks about this sort of vision he had of the Father talking to the Messiah. He says, I saw both of my lords. I saw the Father speaking to the Son, the Messiah. And he he says a bunch of things to him about how he's going to make his enemies his footstool. But David comes to Psalm 110, verse 4, and he says that the Father God said to God the Son, he says this, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, now the you is talking of Christ. You, Christ, are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's what Hebrews is going to do. He's going to pull that in to say, we need to understand that. Because Jesus functions as our high priest forever and ever and ever and ever. It doesn't ever stop. So your salvation never ends. Forgiveness offered to you is never limited. It's eternal. It's infinite. Because Jesus doesn't get his priesthood from Levi and Aaron. He gets it from Melchizedek. And God used that figure to make the point through David in Psalm 110. I will carry on that priesthood forever like Melchizedek. And here we are today in 2023 reading it from Hebrews. He picked it up and said, Dear Christian, take heart that your salvation is secure. It's eternal. It never ends. It's not limited because Jesus' priesthood was never limited like Melchizedek's. This next point he's going to make is Melchizedek had an eternal priesthood, but his priesthood's also greater, greater than Aaron's. That's verses 4 through 10. So here he says in verse 4, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. When you're studying your Bible, I always like to look for what are the commands? What are we supposed to do with what it says? There's actually only one command I could find in this passage here, and it's right here in verse 4. When my translation says, see how great, that's the command. He's, he's calling on us to say, look, you need to consider this man Melchizedek, how important, how significant he was. So let's look at him again. Look look and consider how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers. Through these also are descended, though these are also descended from Abraham. 
But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham, meaning Melchizedek, and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior, meaning Abraham is the inferior figure in that story and Melchizedek is the superior. In verse 8, in the, case, in the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one who, of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. I'll say this real brief, and I want to get to a point and we'll be done. He says, look, Melchizedek collected a tithe from Abraham. When they met, he collected a tenth, a tithe, from Abraham. Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils of his victory to Melchizedek. And here's what's interesting, he says, is the Levitical priests, they are the ones that receive tithes from the other sons of Abraham. In Numbers 18.21, God commanded, he said to the Levites, I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting, so that the people of Israel do not come near the tent of meeting, lest they bear sin and die. Verse 23, But the Levites shall do the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the people of Israel they shall have no inheritance. Verse 24, For the tithe of the people of Israel, which they present as a contribution to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Um, so again, he says, look, the law called for the Levites to receive a tenth, a tithe, from the other tribes of Israel. God wanted that. He called for that. That was what they got for their service as priests and ministers before the Lord. But he said, but the writer here says, but here's what's interesting. In the story between Melchizedek and Abraham, who gave a tithe to who? Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek's family is not from Abraham. He's not a Jew, yet he collected tithes from Abraham. This implies that Melchizedek had a greater status than Abraham and a greater priesthood than Levi because then Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It says that Abraham had the promises of God. If you look at uh, Hebrews 7 here in verse 5, I think. Nope, not verse 5, verse 6, I'm sorry. It says, But this man does not have his descendants from them, received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him. But the phrase is, who had the promises. Abraham's the one that's really important. God gave him the promise that he would bless all nations and that he would have many sons and daughters so much as the stars in the sky. But yet he can still say, However, Melchizedek was of a higher status in that event. Because Melchizedek didn't give a gift to Abraham. Abraham gave a gift to Melchizedek. Yet it was Abraham carrying God's promises. So Melchizedek is of greater status than Abraham. Now if that's true, that means Melchizedek is of greater status than Levi. Why? Because Levi comes through the lineage of Abraham. So he says here in verse 7, it is beyond dispute. You can't argue the point that the inferior, that's Abraham, is blessed by the superior, that's Melchizedek. So there's no dispute here. The lesser is blessed by the greater. The Levitical priests, he says, they're mortal men. They died and their priesthood ended, and yet they collected tithes from other mortal men. 
But Melchizedek, his story is told as if we don't have a record of his death, so I'm going to use that to make the case. It's as if he lives on, not literally, but we can say his priesthood carries on, and he received tithes from Abraham. And he makes the case here down in verse 9. He says, one could even say that Levi himself, who gets tithes from people, but yet it could be said that Levi paid a tithe to Melchizedek. Well, how can he say that? Levi wasn't alive then. Levi was the great-grandson of Abraham, so he wasn't alive yet. But what he says here in verse 10 is, but Levi comes from the loins, the seed of Abraham. So in that sense, he says, I'm going to make the case that it's as if Levi was sort of in the body of Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham. And that drives home his point. Melchizedek has a higher, a greater priesthood than Levi ever had because it's as if Levi paid tribute to Melchizedek's. Now, all of that to finish with, this is the point I wanted to make for us this morning. That background will actually help us in sermons to come because he will say, look, because of how important Melchizedek is, he's going to make a case Jesus Christ is like a priest of Melchizedek today and here's the greater salvation that he offers here's what i want us to leave with this morning though that struck me as so profound studying for this i want to end and i want you to think about this concept the infinite wisdom of god think about that the infinite that means it has no boundaries there's no limits to the wisdom of god because i want us to see this point from going through all that god's wisdom is truly profound. I, th- I think we say that, and we know it from our heads, but I want us to try to let it sink in our heart this morning. That's why I said it, it matters that we look at a man from 4,000 years ago because it teaches us something so profound about the infinite wisdom of God. Think with me for a moment here. God, through the Holy Spirit, had Moses record the book of Genesis, which means He had him record the story about Melchizedek with just three verses. Very limited detail did he have Moses share about Melchizedek. We know very little about him. Perhaps around the year 2000 BC, some people say is when that event could have happened. So then you fast forward, and I'm guessing a little bit here to be honest, but you fast forward, let's say 1,000, 1,200, 1,400 years later, give or take, and you get to King David. And King David can say what he said in Psalm 110.4, you are priest after the order of Melchizedek. So now we have only four verses in all the Bible, the Old Testament, I should say, not counting Hebrews, about this guy Melchizedek. He's used in Moses' day, he writes about him. The event happens maybe in 2000 BC, maybe 13, 1400 years later, David references him. Then maybe you get seven, eight hundred years later, maybe a thousand years, Hebrews mentions him. And now here we are today in 2023, 2,000 years after Jesus, and we're still talking about the guy. So what can this guy possibly tell us from 4,000 years ago about the wisdom of God? Because from what Moses said, not just what he said, but how he said it, or rather how little he talked about Melchizedek all those thousands of years ago, 
Hebrews uses that in such a precise way to share with us about how wonderful Jesus functions as our high priest, the greater salvation that he offers. If God had Moses give any more detail about Melchizedek, think, think about this hypothetical. If God had had Moses do what he did with every other guy he wrote about, you know, Abraham, son of uh, this guy, and then Lot, son of this, and then Moses, son of that, and Aaron, son of that. Everyone's mentioned, and it says son of, and it gives their family name. And then it usually says they had sons and daughters, and then they grew to be 130, 140, whatever, and then they died. You have a record of their family, and you have a record of their years lived. Melchizedek got an exception, and I believe that was by design. God knew what he was doing. Because if Moses had given us any one more single piece of information about Melchizedek, we could not talk about him the way we are in Hebrews. We could not understand Jesus' salvation in the way he wants us to get it, about how he comes as a priest after Melchizedek. God knew what he was doing in how he had Moses write about Melchizedek, and then that, that allowed David to talk about him in one more verse, thousand years later. That allows Hebrews to talk about him in the way he did, thousands years later, and us to talk about him thousands years later. My point is this. God is very intentional in what he does and the way he says things. His wisdom is infinite. It knows no bounds. And I think it's displayed here in how he even had very little mentioned about Melchizedek. See, my mind says, I want to know more about the guy. He seems fascinating. Why can't we know more? And God's wisdom says, you don't need to know more. Because if you knew more, you couldn't be understanding Hebrews the way you understand it today, which helps you understand your salvation a little bit better. It would have thrown the whole argument off in the book of Hebrews. My point then is, if God can orchestrate events that span thousands of years, don't you think he can work in your life and mine in the year 2023 still today? This is the wisdom of God. He ensured salvation could happen in such a precise and perfect way that he could save us for all eternity without any limits. And it's all because of a man 4,000 years ago that he said we're only going to mention about him in a certain way so that in the year 2023, my people can see what great lengths I went to to save their souls and give them salvation for all eternity. Those who put their faith in Jesus can reap the benefits of Jesus being a priest after Melchizedek. The question would be, have, have you trusted God with your soul this morning? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior to forgive you of your sins? You and I are not wise enough to save ourselves, only Jesus can. But Christians, let me say, have you trusted God? I think this is a point I want us to see this morning. Have you trusted God in your daily life? Not just with your soul, but your actual practical life that you live every single day. Have you trusted God that he maybe is more wise about financial decisions than you and I are? Are you trusting him with your finances? Are you following biblical principles for financial management? Are you trusting God with how you're a husband, how you're a wife, how you're a mother and a father? Are you trusting his ways over your own because he, his wisdom is infinite? Are you trusting God with how you're an employee at your job? or going off of your own instincts. That's why I wanted to share this to say this little event about Melchizedek shows us a far greater principle. God knows what he's talking about. So when you read in Proverbs 
do this with your money and raise your kids this way and you read in the New Testament, you know, treat people this way and live this way. God means it. He put it in there that way for a reason. He knows what he's talking about. So our job's to listen to it, follow his wisdom, not our own. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is God talking, saying, My thoughts are not like your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You could be in a situation, you say, I don't see a way through this, I don't understand this, but hear me clearly, trust the Lord's wisdom. It's infinitely wise. And here in Isaiah, he's repeating this idea, you may not understand how it's going to work out by doing it God's way, but you have to trust it will, because God knows what he's doing. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord. You want to be smart? It starts with following and acknowledging God first. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths straight. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So brothers and sisters, I just didn't want to give a history lesson. I want us to leave with this. History teaches us something, though, about God. He's infinitely wise. He moves through history in a purposeful way to get to a purposeful point in a precise manner to save our souls. And that means you can trust him in your daily choices, your daily way you structure your life, your family, your finances, everything. God's wisdom is infinite. Trust it. Follow it. Are you listening to his wisdom or your own? This morning, maybe you're here and you just said, look, I'm not sure about all this then it may be you don't really know Christ. Have you first trusted Christ to save your soul, to forgive you of your sins? Because the Bible says that's how wisdom starts, is you first come to faith in Christ. This morning, I want to give you a chance to reflect, think about that um, as Bruce and them come, I'll pray in a minute. But when they lead us through that final song, I just ask you, Christians, I challenge you, Reflect and see, God, show me where I'm not trusting your wisdom and I need to. Follow it. Don't doubt it. Just follow it. Just do it. Even if it doesn't make sense, just do it. Then maybe you'd say, you know what? I'm not sure I'm really in the Lord because I don't know Christ. Then why not leave here today knowing him? There's no reason not to. I'm up front. If you don't feel comfortable coming up front, I didn't. Okay, that's okay. You can wait for me at the end of the service. I'd love to talk to you. I'll be here as long as it takes until you get whatever settled that you need to share. My cell phone number's in the bulletin too if you want to call me later. Let me pray and we'll close out with a final song. Father, thank you that we have such stories as this that we don't fully grasp them all until we read more of your word and we see that you were moving in magnificent ways just to get Jesus here to be our Savior, and not just to get him here, but that he would come and die in such a precise way that our salvation can have eternal benefit. Thank you for everything you do for us, Lord Jesus. If there's any here that doesn't know you as their Savior, would you convict them in such a way that they get that settled this morning? And help us all, Lord, as your Christians to walk in your wisdom, not our own. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.